thank you for joining me for another episode of Let's Talk ID. I'm Barb Alexander, president of IDSA. Let me take a few minutes to give you a brief update from IDSA. As we discussed during our last episode of Let's Talk ID, uh, IDSA is committed to addressing ID physician compensation, and we need your help on our latest efforts with this initiative. Many of you have participated in the ID compensation surveys that we conducted in the past, and, and thanks to that participation, we have a clear picture of how much ID physicians are paid. But what we lack is robust documentation of how hard ID physicians are working. To capture that missing piece of the puzzle, we've launched a new survey. It's open to all ID physicians in the United States with the goal of creating a more nuanced and accurate picture of ID physician effort and how the work is recognized and compensated. We've sent an email link to uh, the survey to all IDSA members. So please take a few minutes to complete it. it. It's estimated that it will take 10 to 20 minutes. Please also share the link with your ID colleagues, regardless of if they're IDSA members or not. The more data we have, the better positioned we'll be to address the problems. I also wanted to make sure that you're aware that the search for the editor-in-chief of our Journal of Infectious Diseases is now also underway and that the deadline for applications is July 1st. You can find details about the position and the application process on the JID website. The application window for advancement to fellow of IDSA is now also open. Fellowship within our society represents acknowledgement of sustained and professional excellence in service to the field. The deadline for applications is May 31st. So if you know someone who may qualify, please encourage and support their application. On the advocacy front, IDSA is currently collaborating on a bipartisan letter that urges Congress to significantly e increase funding to CDC's work on antibiotic resistance. Thanks to all the IDSA members who've already emailed their representatives and, and some have even participated in virtual congressional meetings on this topic. So far, we have over 50 representatives, um, both Democrats as well as Republicans, um, that have signed this letter thanks to all of your advocacy. So please keep working on that for us. Finally, I think many of you likely have already heard by now, but the Board of Directors did decide that given the ongoing uncertainty of the pandemic, we will go virtual with ID Week in 2021. The Program Planning Committee has already started building the scientific content of the meeting, which we're, we're certainly looking forward to in October. Today, I'm joined by the Director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Dr. Walensky received her MD from Johns Hopkins, completed her infectious diseases training at the Mass General and Brigham and Women's uh, Combined Fellowship Program, and received her MPH from the Harvard School of Public Health. Prior to being appointed director of CDC in January, Dr. Walensky was serving as chief of ID at Massachusetts General Hospital and was actually vice chair of the board of directors for IDSA's HIV Medical Association. Dr. Walensky's research over the years is focused on HIV and AIDS policy, including cost-effective strategies for HIV care in the U.S. and, and in resource-limited settings. But in the wake of the pandemic, she had turned her efforts to COVID, conducting research on vaccine delivery and strategies to reach underserved communities. I am absolutely delighted she's been able to take time to talk with us today. Rochelle, let me just start by saying congratulations on your appointment as director of the CDC. The ID community is absolutely thrilled that you were selected for, and I might throw in there that you accepted the <laughs> job. 
Thank you so much. It's so delightful for me to be back with my IDSA community. We're just really excited that you've been able to take some time to be with us. You assumed leadership of CDC in January in the middle of this raging pandemic and after a year during which the CDC had been under intense public scrutiny and political pressure. When you were walking into the job, what did you see as your number one priority? You know, as a nation, we needed to be out of this pandemic, and it was going to be CDC's job as the leading public health agency in this country to to get this nation back to safety, back to good public health and out of this pandemic. So that uh, included sort of updating guidance, vaccinations, how we did all the rollout, collaborating across agencies and across the federal government to make sure that we were working consistently and collaboratively to help get us out of this pandemic. So of course, everybody sort of assumed that that would be number one, but there were so many other things that sort of underpinned that. And that is, um, we needed to do that in an equitable fashion. We needed to make sure that health equity was baked into everything we were doing was a key component of what we were doing in COVID. And then I would like to say, as we've done all this extraordinary outreach and we're making all of these health, health equity efforts to make sure that they stick for things after COVID. One of the things that has really been a challenge for the CDC the year prior is this narrative that science hasn't been leading the way. So we really did need to make sure that science was the Northern Light, the guiding star of everything that we were doing and everyone knew that science was underpinning everything. And so as part of that, I needed to make sure that all of our guidance was driven by science, that our subject matter experts believe that that guidance was really driven by, motivated by science. And so we did a full review to make sure everything that we had was what the subject matter experts wrote and was driven by science. Trying to put science in the forefront back to where it should be, making sure that we were being equitable with our efforts to address the pandemic especially in the populations that were hardest hit. What, now that you've been in the position for a while, has your priority changed at all? Or are you, are you about, the, you know, about the same as where you were? Well, we've accomplished some things, which I think allow us to focus in either focus down deeper or focus on other things. So that it was really helpful for me to have the scientific review led by my principal deputy, Dr. Ann Shuket, who I admire and respect. Things were removed from the websites. Things were updated, scientific briefs. We got some best practices. We should accompany everything with scientific briefs. We should have an executive summary so it's easy to understand the changes. We should reach out to key stakeholders and understand what they need. So I, I think we've developed, we've improved our, our communication and developed some best practices. We did have, we launched a racism and health website, which I'm really excited about so that, that folks really understand that everything that we do at CDC, not just in COVID, is really going to be with a lens towards equity. And, and so that I think is really going to be important moving forward. I do think that among the things that we need to work on as we're thinking about the next step of the pandemic and the next step in public health is to really bolster our public health infrastructure. And I've been spending a lot of time talking with members of Congress and other agencies about how our public health infrastructure was too frail to handle this pandemic when it started, about our really thin workforce, about our, our data that was not in a, you know, our, our need for data monitorization and the lack of uh, capacity in our state labs 
to, to accomplish what needed to happen um, during a pandemic time. So I do think that I have spent a lot of time reiterating that this is not uh, you know, a situation where we throw one-time money at it and we're done because this happened because we lacked the public health infrastructure to handle something like this. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. You've listed a lot of issues that you were um, trying to address all at once, but what do you... What do you think is the agency's biggest challenge, if you had to pick one, in addressing the pandemic? And what specifically are you, how are you working to overcome that particular challenge? I think it's it's the intersection between equity and vaccine distribution. We've spent a lot of time looking at the data on the heterogeneity of vaccine uptake. When we say that 37% of Americans over the age of 18 have been fully vaccinated, that doesn't mean 37% in every county in the country. It means some counties are at 50% and others are at 10. What does that heterogeneity mean? And how is it that we reach to people from a vaccine confidence standpoint, but also a vaccine equity standpoint and make sure that we get vaccine to the people who need it. We get vaccine with trusted messengers because not everybody is a trusted messenger and doing that outreach. And what I think is so important in our next steps of public health is we know that all of those places where the outreach is hard, where we need to meet people where they are, many of those communities are lacking so much in other areas of public health. And what I would call the collateral damage of this pandemic is all of the ways that public health has slid because of COVID-19. And so I'll give one example, and that is we're 11 million childhood vaccinations behind. Mm. And those are going to be in the communities that just don't access childhood vaccinations. So can we spend a lot of our time and energy making sure that those connections, those communities that we're engaging in, the community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, are networks that we can now go back to to make sure your children get vaccinated, to make sure your blood pressure is in good control, to make sure that your HIV is controlled, all of those things that I think we're going to need to go back to do after this pandemic. So really building public trust in a network um, that's based in the community that we can use for, for um, the upcoming generations. We'll work on, I guess, not only COVID vaccine and uptake, but for other issues that, that we're facing from a public health standpoint. I think mental health is a key one of those as well, you know, that everybody is really talking about the challenge that we've had with mental health mm-hmm. because of this pandemic. I think people don't realize we had a huge challenge with mental health before this pandemic. So when we look at our youth between 2009 and 2014 uh, and 2009 and 2019, mental health challenges increased 40% in that demographic. And so this was actually a real challenge before the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic isolation, you know, distancing, all of that has certainly not helped. A commonly used term when we're discussing the pandemic, and I think perhaps second only to the word unprecedented, is preparedness. And I recognize that we are currently in the middle of the current pandemic, but as you're envisioning, we need to start building our infrastructure out. When do you think we're actually going to have the bandwidth to start creating defined plans or developing a, you know, a concrete set of uh, blueprints for future pandemic preparedness? 
And what I would say is we're already starting. So all of our efforts that we're doing right now and engaged in right now with COVID-19 are going to be the shoulders that we're stepping on so that we can do more of this pandemic preparedness. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I started on January 20th, the country was sequencing 251 virus samples a week. This past week, we surpassed 30,000. So we really have been scaling up genomic sequencing, genomic epidemiology, all of that in an effort to really understand what's happening with COVID-19. This week, we sequenced 7.6% of all sequences. And we will be able to use that platform to look for AMR and different patterns of resistance and to look for you know, other, other outbreaks. Um, so I think that w as we're building these platforms, we will, they're, they're not perfect and we still have much more to do, but we're do building it with the future in mind. Another example might be the public health workforce. So we know from surveys that over the last decade, when we've had Ebola and Zika and H1N1 and now COVID-19, during that period of time, uh, a survey from TIFA suggested we've lost 56,000 public health jobs. So now we have a whole bunch of people interested. We have hired contact tracers. We have hired community core members um, who are really working to move forward a bigger public health strategy where we're working, we've employed workforce for vaccination. How can we keep some of those engaged in the public health workforce and then bolster the public health workforce? It just seems prudent that we start planning now while we're in the, the thick of the current pandemic, particularly before interest starts waning. Uh, one of my greatest personal fears is that once the COVID pandemic is under control, pandemic fatigue will prevail and our country will simply lose interest. I think it's really important that we spend the time and money to ensure optimal planning for the future and that we start doing it now. So I like what I'm hearing there. You had mentioned crosstalk between federal agencies. Is it actually realistic for us to hope that there will be cooperation across federal agencies as we start planning? I mean, I understand that the clinical trial infrastructure has typically under, been under the auspices of the NIH and then like new, new diagnostics or drugs uh, and approval or authorization has been under the FDA. And then CDC is public health surveillance and prevention. But it seems pretty clear to me that cooperation among the agencies is going to be critical um, to our efforts moving forward. What I would say is it's been extraordinary for me to see how that crosstalk has happened across agencies. And so I've been really pleased. Now how, you know, I'm really hopeful that all of this will, will stick. But just to give you some examples, um, CDC and NIH have been collaborating on a, a pilot project for free rapid self-administered tests in North Carolina and Tennessee, two counties in North Carolina and Tennessee. That, those studies are ongoing. We've been collaborating with HRSA to help launch the Federally Qualified Healthcare Center um, COVID-19 vaccine rollout. So we've been working really closely with them. We've been really working really closely with CMS on nursing home guidance, long-term care facility guidance. I have you know, a bunch of calls with Bob Fenton of FEMA because FEMA and CDC have been collaborating on the um, community vaccination sites. We've worked with them really closely as to how you get vaccine there, what's the guidance you use, and where we should be placing these. Um, so CDC has provided a lot of guidance on making sure that they're in areas of high census, high social vulnerability index, places where, where people might actually come to these and, and working closely with FEMA. So, you know, just in the few months that I've been working, it's, it's really been extraordinary collaborative 
with Department of Defense. I, I have weekly calls with General Perna um, and really just seeing how all these cross agencies are working together towards this common goal. And I really do hope that that will um, be maintained because we have not only the common goal of public health, but the common goal of implementing and making sure that public health is achieved. It's critical to start thinking about or to think about the ID workforce as it relates to the infrastructure that we're trying to build. ID trained physicians are critical to addressing not only this infectious threat, but future infectious threats. You know, we need ID trained clinicians, we need scientists, we need public health specialists who are helping create these networks to go into communities and be the providers that the population trust and then help get the therapies and preventive measures that we or that you at CDC create or develop um, into those populations. Also pulling those people back into clinical trials, perhaps into community-based um, clinical trials rather than having such um, all of our major clinical trials based at academic centers. So with all of this in mind, you published a paper with Dan McQuillan, our current IDSA president-elect, back in June in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it was um, titled, um, Where is ID in COVID-19? And you found that 80% of counties in the U.S. do not have an ID physician. So I would like to get your thought about the value of the ID workforce in the current as well as future pandemics. Yeah, so thank you for highlighting that. Um, of course, this is a an issue I feel passionate about and not one that that passion has changed having, you know, crossed my job titles. So I, I really am extraordinarily grateful to the ID community for the support of public health. I think so many of people in ID have public health in mind. So many people throughout this pandemic in the ID community have been hit really hard, both in terms of their work hours and their work needed, their expertise that is truly needed, not just in their own hospitals, but to extend further out so that they can help people in areas, as you know, that don't have infectious disease. So I have extraordinary gratitude. I, I keep telling my, my team at CDC, I will talk to anyone graduating from any place because of the plan is to encourage them to go to ID into ID. I really do. Um, and to go into public health, we take these moments and we reflect on them and they become part of who we are. I'm an infectious disease physician because I trained during the period of HIV. And I do think that this period will motivate a lot of careers in people who are, I know there have been increased applications to public health schools, increased applications to medical schools. I think we'll see what happens with applications to infectious disease in the year ahead. But I do think there is a lot of motivation by the time. We can't rely on that, of course. We also need to bolster the ID, not just the ID workforce, but the entire public health workforce. So CDC is doing a lot there in terms of our public health associates program, placing people in state, state health officers with state health officers so they can really understand how public health works working with our Public Health Service Corps and then our HHS COVID Community Corps. But then also one of the things is so many people in ID are, are interested in the EIS program. And one of the um, things we're really working on in the EIS program is, is loan repayment. So many people have turned away EIS because of the, they, they just have loans. 76% of people are graduating with, you know, two with loans and it's an, on average 200K. So we're working hard to see if we can re revise policy to, to forgive some of the loan repayment in our EIS programs. And I think that that was actually something that I think is really important. We talked about in that piece, where is the ID and COVID-19 to say like, 
like, you know, we have a lot of people who are actually interested in the field and it's the debt that's getting in the way. All right, so let's change gears just a bit. Um, I know that, <laughs> recognize that CDC is currently out of necessity, all hands on deck to deal with COVID, but um, what, if anything, is CDC currently doing to address the threat of antibiotic resistance? And, and I guess, how can CDC and IDSA work together on this issue? Yeah, what's been really interesting for me, we have 800 people working in the response at any given time for COVID, but you know, there's still a huge agency of people who are really still passionate about all things that the agency did and, and, and does. There are still cases of salmonella that get reported and still cases of legionnaires that get reported. And you know, all the public health does not stop because we have this one pandemic. There are still other things that we need to continue the really important work on, and certainly antibiotic resistance is among them. Domestically, CDC is investigating in key prevention strategies like early detection, containment, infection prevention, and we have been since 2016 supporting funding to state health departments, state and local health departments for over 500 staff nationwide to combat uh, antimicrobial resistance. So we are actively working in these areas, and we're really excited about you know, the efforts moving forward to accelerate this fight against antimicrobial resistance, including antimicrobial resistance laboratory network supporting that nationwide lab capacity to detect resistance. So we do have a lot of ongoing activity, even though right now you're not hearing about it because you're hearing a lot about COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to hear anything else right now. Um, so um, going back to something that I, I know is close to your heart as well, what about the HIV epidemic? Are we on track or how can we get back on track with meeting the goals of ending the HIV epidemic initiative? Yes, as you know, this is something near and dear to my heart, something I've been working on since it, the initiative was announced. And I'm really enthusiastic that that I believe this initiative is still, you know, people are still enthusiastic to move this forward. What's been so great about uh, the folks and the connections we've had and, and the epidemic is that the end the epidemic the HIV epidemic initiative is about the outreach that we need. It is about the community-based organizations. It is about getting to those folks who are really tend to be hard to access. So we've leveraged a lot of the EHE work to, to piggyback on it, on what we're doing for COVID-19. And so what I think we're really going to need to do is make sure that we keep those that connection going and continue to have the service providers who've adapted the situation for COVID-19 and continue back um, towards the end the epidemic. The folks that I've talked to in our HIV program, John O'Merman, Dimitri Deskalakis, are, are really enthusiastic about moving this forward, are, are somewhat optimistic that the slide back in, the, in what we were working about the gains, um, her, the slide back hasn't been as much as we were worried, and that we will be able to reinvigorate those efforts when we can focus less on pandemic. Well, so that's true. You know, for us all, COVID has underscored what we've all known as ID physicians, that in our increasingly interconnected world, that pathogens just don't respect national borders. And it's certainly been encouraging that uh, the Biden administration has been reengaging with the World Health Organization and our other global partners. But how would you like to see the CDC strengthen our approach to global health security? 
you know, I think you really touched on something that is so important and that we at CDC know, and that is um, we can we are one world. All, when you think that look at all of our infectious threats of the last four of, of the last decade, the Zika and the Ebola and the, the COVID-19, they didn't start in our borders. They started outside of them um, and we are all connected. And even now, I, I feel the humanitarian need to help across the world. But if someone doesn't, the real issue is that you, if we don't help the world, we could have danger back home as well. And so I think the, the need is for both. I'm really enthusiastic that CDC is part of helping to restore the U.S. Um, leadership in global health. We've been at the table with the WHO. We're continuing to be at the table um, supporting COVAX. We have longstanding collaborations with the WHO. We support activities in over 60 countries. And it was really nice even, even recently as we are uh, reaching out to support India that CDC already has these great collaborations in India with the India EIS. We've already helped support 14,000 infection preventionists in India up until this date. We have the capacity to procure and ship oxygen in a really rapid fashion because of those connections. So it's really been nice to see how we can take those collaborations and lean into them to help others in need. Distinction, excellence, service. Set yourself apart today. Become a fellow of IDSA. Visit idsociety.org slash to apply by May 31st. My last question for you is, based on your career and your experiences to date, uh, if you had to give one piece of advice to new ID trainees, what would it be? Um, don't be scared of the path that's unknown. I never thought I was going to be an infectious disease doc. And when I started reading about interesting cases, leaning in, I, it was HIV that interested me. It was those cases that interested me. And um, so, so that's where it led. What I would say is you can't sort of know exactly what your passion is until you sort of see it in front of you. So lean into to what that passion is, read, engage treat every patient with respect, um, treat pa every patient as if it's your family, ask huge questions in research um, because those are the ones that are just most fun to pursue. And, and don't be afraid of some path untaken. I, I can tell you that I promise you, I never expected the call I received on November 12th asking me if I would join this administration. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, don't be afraid to lean, lean in. Very good. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been um, just a delight talking with you and to hearing all about what the agency has going on right now. We're just, again, really super excited that you're at the helm and we look forward to working with you um, moving forward. Thank you so much. It's delightful to be here. Good to chat, Barb. Good to chat with you as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget to visit the IDSA website for up-to-date information on our society's efforts, including access to the CDC-sponsored COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Mm -hmm.